Okay, so today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 16. Um, it is, uh, we're, we're, we're quickly approaching the end of the book. We're quickly approaching the culmination, in fact, in this chapter, the culmination of, uh, of God's wrath upon, uh, upon the land. Uh, if you haven't been joining us through these episodes of uh, Walking Through Revelation, I would encourage you to stop this recording and go back and listen to the others because we're going to be building on a foundation that we have already laid uh, over and over again. I told you at the very beginning uh, there are uh, several different ways of looking at the book of Revelation. You have the the futurist who sees it all in the future at the end times at the in the last days before the end of history, uh, revived Roman Empire and all those kind of things. You have the spiritualist who sees uh, not technically a. Uh, a fulfillment in time, not a literal fulfillment, but something that is applicable in these prophecies throughout the church age, and it applies to every age. And there's some merit for that as well. And you've also, we've also talked about mainly the preterist uh, uh, interpretive model, which shows that this is revelation is the, uh, the the majority of revelation. Let's just say is the uh, is fulfilled in the culmination of the old covenant, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the wiping away of the old covenant, and and the uh, the validation of the new. There are still things that are uh, to come, still things in the future uh, that we will see at the at the close of the book of Revelation. That we're waiting on Christ's return. We're waiting on the new heavens, new earth, all those kind of things. But the, the majority, the lion's share of Revelation, has uh, already taken place in the preterist view. Um, and I also told you just a quick review for all this. If you're just joining us, you need to go back and listen to those others because I told you that this is not an this is not an issue for us to divide over. This is not an issue to break fellowship with. Uh, please, please, I'm the one r- r- writing these outlines, and I'm the one doing this uh, audio recording. If you if you use my materials and plop them down in front of your pastor and say you've been teaching me wrong and I you're an idiot you're an idiot you need to uh, understand that there are some smart people some very godly men and women some very scholarly men and women who disagree totally with what I'm telling you and disagree with uh, other points of view and there's room for debate room for uh, us to uh, discuss these it's, it's important because it affects the way we interpret you know the rest of scripture but it is an in-house it's an in-house debate I'm not going to be I'm not going to be arguing this with anybody. Eschatology is a very emotional issue, and you need to divorce yourself. And so divorce yourself from the emotions. So what I've been trying to do, if you're just joining us, is I've been trying to give you evidence. I've been trying to give you evidence for why I interpret it the way I interpret it. Not just say this means that and this means that, but give you evidence as to why I say it means that. And you take that evidence and you decide. And if you decide, you know, hey, you're totally wrong and you're looking at this the wrong way, uh, more power to you. You know it'll it'll be fine. I don't. I still call you a brother or sister. I don't have any any trouble any trouble saying that whatsoever. Um, that being said, I, I need to say I said all that to say this. I'm gonna have to pull back a little bit on the information that I've been providing in these things. These episodes are getting longer and longer. We started uh, and they were 30 minutes long, and now you know the the they're an hour and a half, and so I, I may have to pull back on just uh, how much information I'm giving you. So. Uh, I may do that. But in this in this chapter, Revelation 16, 
we are going to see the bold judgments, the the final culmination of uh, the uh, the wrath of God being poured out. And you can see that in verse one. It says, "Remember, the last thing we saw in uh, Revelation fifteen was um, the the temple in heaven open. The temple of the of the tabernacle of the testimony was open in heaven, and then you know God's uh, glory filled the temple, so no one could enter and." Uh, there would be that which we said meant there would be no one to go in and intercede anymore the wrath is going to be poured out and nothing can stop it uh and then angels seven angels with seven plagues proceeded out of the temple they're going to proceed out of the temple here but uh the the sanctuary was filled with the glory of god the smoke from the glory of god until the seven plagues were were finished uh and so in verse one it says then i heard a loud voice from the temple telling seven angels go and pour out on the earth, on the land, we've talked about that over and over again, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. That word bowl is translated vials or, or different ways in different translations. I've always said bowl, and so that's that's just what that's just what I'm going to say. Seven cups, seven whatever whatever you want to call it. Um, the uh, the command proceeds from the heavenly temple. And uh, I take this to be God's voice, to be God's command, Christ's command, uh, because it said no one could enter the temple because of the glory of God until the angels were finished with their ministration. And we see the angels as priests. We saw this last week in, in uh, Revelation 15. They're dressed as, in, the, in the garments that the, the priest wore. It des- describes their dress, and they and they bring forth these bowls. And that, interestingly enough, that word bowl was used uh, for the, uh, the, uh, the vessel that the drink offerings in the tabernacle in the Old Testament were used. The priest would come and he would pour the drink offering out on the sacrifice. And and, and so what you see here is these priests uh, in the heavenly temple, these angels representing these priests, bringing the, forth the uh, the drink offering, so to speak, to be poured onto the sacrifice uh, as God's wrath is poured out upon uh, what, we, what we understand as uh, the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to explain that more and more as we go through chapter 16, but uh, hopefully you've already seen it as we've walked through the the chapters of revelation the bold judgments they're going to represent the final covenant judgment of god uh we've seen this over and over in revelation the judgment isn't just judgment hey uh, god's wrath and he's mad and he's going to pour out judgment on you the judgments that we have seen we have connected throughout revelation so far to old testament passages that proclaim God's covenant judgment if the people he made covenant with break covenant with him. We've seen it over and over again. You're going to see it again today in uh, Revelation 16. Uh, The bold judgments are going to be parallel with the trumpet judgments that we have already seen. Uh, They're going to be parallel with them in one way or another. They're going to mirror them. So, And we've talked about this before, the uh, principle of recapitulation, how apocalyptic literature uh, is kind of more like a spiral than a linear chronology of events. Uh, It's going to come back around and back around, and every time it comes back around to show us the same picture, it intensifies. So in the... uh, in the uh, in the first judgments, uh, the seal judgments, you have one third, one one fourth of the land, one fourth of the people, one fourth of the ground. Uh, in the trumpet judgments, you have one third of the people, one third of the ground, one third of the sea, one third of the sun uh, going dark. Uh, here, you're going to have the entirety, the entirety of the ground destroyed, the entirety of the people, the entirety of the sun going dark, and those kind of things. So we're seeing the same judgments, but we're seeing them intensified as we move through this. Sp- 
spiral that John gives us through these uh, through this literature. But not just the trumpet judgments. The bowl judgments are also going to mirror uh, very conclusively and pr- pretty amazingly, if you ask me, the Exodus judgments, the Exodus plagues that uh, happened to Egypt. And so, if you remember in last uh, last uh, the last uh, episode in Revelation 15, we saw a lot of Exodus imagery. We saw the people, the covenant people, the new covenant people coming out from their oppressors, and we saw them singing the song of Moses, that the the same song that uh, Moses and the people sang as they crossed the Red Sea, and and we see all that imagery from the Exodus uh, in Revelation 15. Well, that's going to continue in Revelation 16 because we're going to see the seven plagues. We're going to see seven of the of the plagues, each one identified with a plague of Egypt, and that is a uh, that's a. Uh, um, it's necessary for us to see that, and it's it's uh, it's right for it to to be that way because uh, Jerusalem has already. If you've been with us, you know that Jerusalem uh, um, has already been called Egypt in chapter eleven. Uh, it says uh, the the city which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where where their Lord was crucified, and so. Um, We've already seen Jerusalem uh, characterized as Egypt. And in Deuteronomy 2860, uh, God promised, we've seen this before too, God promised that if the people failed to keep covenant um, with God, then uh, he would pour out the uh, the plagues of Egypt upon them. Uh, that's Deuteronomy 2860. You can go look that up. All these are in the outline as well. I'm kind of following the outline today. So uh, you can go look at that at jasonvalada.com. But he is... His promise that that covenant judgment would be poured out, the plagues of Egypt would return upon the people if they didn't break covenant. And that's what we're going to see today. So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through these seven bowls, and we're going to look at them hopefully really quickly. We're going to make some statements. We're going to make some uh, um, correlations with these things, and we're going to see what what happens. And so verse 2, it says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. On the land, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped the beast. Okay, so the first bowl is poured out. What we're going to see here is uh, uh, the first the first bowl is poured out. Um, the first trumpet was also poured out on the land in the same way that it says this is this uh, bowl is poured out on the land, and it says the the effect of it was uh, sores come upon the beast worshippers. Now, of course. You probably know the the references to the sixth plague, the sixth plague of Egypt. Uh, boils. There was boils and sores come upon the people in the Exodus. That's Exodus nine nine through ten. It says it shall become fine dust. This is in Exodus nine. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Uh, so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it into the air and it became boils breaking out sores on man and beast and so what you see is the first plague, the plague that God, uh, the angel pours out the bowl of the wrath of God, sores come out upon uh, mankind, and it's the same thing that we've seen in the Egypt, the Egypt plague, the Egyptian uh, uh, plague of of uh, when the people were brought out of Egypt, and it also has a historical reference to the plague. You know, we've already talked about during the siege of Jerusalem, disease, pestilence, all all these kind of things covered the the city, 
And what's really striking to me is God promised Israel in Deuteronomy 28 that this particular plague would strike them if they refused to keep covenant with God. And when I say refuse to keep covenant with God, uh, I'm kind of basing that off of things that we've already said. What I mean by that is that they have refused their covenant Messiah. The fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came in Jesus Christ, and they have refused that. And so God says in Deuteronomy 28, uh, 28 verse 27 uh, in Deuteronomy it says the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed and so you see a correlation not only with the, the first trumpet in this first bowl but you see a correlation as well with the uh, one of the plagues of Egypt and this particular plague was specifically told to Israel by God that you will receive this plague if you refuse to keep covenant uh, with me. And so um, the question often comes up. We, we've talked about what it means to worship the beast. We talked about uh, the, what it means in, in the sense of sacrificing to uh, uh, the, the pagan gods or sacrificing to the emperor uh, and how Christians were, uh, try, they were trying to force Christians to do this. Uh, but how can, how can Jerusalem, if, you're, if you, the question you're asking is, how can Jerusalem, if you're saying these covenant judgments are poured out on Jerusalem, how can Jerusalem be described as beast worshippers? I thought we were talking about Christians. I thought we were talking about uh, them being uh, them being uh, made to uh, worship the beast and all those kind of things. Well, here's the thing: the Jews, especially the high priest and the temple aristocracy, they overwhelmingly used the political and administrative structure of Rome to persecute the Christians. Uh, uh, we've talked about this before in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, Jews. Uh, continually report Paul to the Roman authorities. You see it over and over and over again in Corinth and in Ephesus and all those things. Uh, the the they they bring uh, charges to uh, uh, the Romans in order to get the Christians persecuted. And so uh, we've talked about this before. And I hate to keep going over the same ground, but every time I, I begin these things, I, I feel like somebody's uh, jumping in when they should be going to the beginning. But we've talked about this over and over again, uh, that the Jews were protected by Roman law because of the antiquity of their religion. They weren't forced to worship the emperor and, and all those kind of things uh, or to pinch incense to his image. Um, but uh, as, uh, as, uh, as uh, Christianity came into being, uh, Romans thought basically it was just another sect of Judaism. And so the Jews did all that they could to make sure the Romans knew it was not. It was a new religion. And being a new religion, it was not subject to the same protection. And so the Jews did all they could to make sure the Romans knew that they were not Jewish. And they would go and they would, um, you know, they would uh, bring accusation against a Christian. And whether the accusation was true or not, whether they were found guilty or not guilty in Roman court, if they were, uh, if they were said to be a Christian, they were forced to pinch incense and, and burn incense to the image of the emperor in order to prove that they were a loyal subject of Rome, and if they refused to do that, they were either executed or tortured. And we see that through historical sources as well as as well as um, in the book of Acts. Uh, but Roman governors 
Roman Rome usually governed uh, the dangerous places, the places that were ripe for revolt. They governed those. Um, they governed those with uh, governors, procreators, those kind of things. But they also used local gov- local rulers uh, in order to sway the people, in order to have a local face on the scene. Uh, Herod Agrippa the second was uh, was one of those, and you can see him in the Book of Acts. He was the one that Paul. He said, "Paul, you know, in, in such a short time, you try to make me a Christian." Um, uh, these governors, Roman governors, and Herod Agrippa, they often chose. They had the prerogative of choosing the high priest. They could depose a high priest, and in fact, they did many times. And they could replace a high priest with uh, with someone that was more conducive to their uh, political ideology. Um, the religious leadership in Jerusalem were puppets of Rome. That's that's noted by many many historians of the time period that we're we're looking at, whether they're Christian or non Christian. It's just a fact. Um, the leadership of uh, of Jerusalem rejected the Messiah and they aligned themselves with the beast. They aligned themselves with Rome. They aligned themselves uh, politically and ideologically with uh, this uh, anti-God persecuting force. Uh, You can even see it in scripture. The leadership uh, of the the temple, the Jewish aristocracy, they rejected the Messiah for fear of Rome. John eleven forty eight. It says, it, you know, Jesus. All these people are coming out to see Jesus. It says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And even at Jesus's trial in John nineteen, what did they do? They cried out. They were incited by the leaders, the high, the high priest. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests listen what they said they said we have no king but caesar and so they align themselves and we've already seen in revelation revelation chapter three in the letters to the churches that the synagogue system is now called the synagogue of satan there was only one group of people that met in a synagogue and and so it's called that and so we see this over and over again that uh the uh, the old covenant remnant uh, the remnants of the old covenant, because they've rejected the Messiah, they no longer have the Father. Jesus was right in saying that no one comes to the Father except through me. So they're seen now as aligning themselves with the beast. They, they're seen now with aligning themselves with the uh, persecutors and the captors of God's people. And so the first bowl is poured out upon them. Uh, and boils break out. And, of course, we know that Rome surrounded the city of Jerusalem and wouldn't let any food in, wouldn't let any people out, and there was disease and pestilence and plague. And Josephus and Tacitus and all those uh, tell us about these, uh, tell us about the, the events that happened inside the city. And so the second bowl. Um, uh, verse three, the angel, second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. Uh, when it says blood of corpse, uh, blood of a corpse, I'm thinking you're thinking congealed blood, like not blood, like running and flowing, but just, I mean, really gross, matted congealing blood and every living thing that was in the sea died in verse three now remember the second trumpet uh we're looking at the second bowl but the second trumpet in in revelation spoke of remember the mountain being thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood in the second trumpet uh this here this is an intensification it's a recapitulation of that judgment and now it's not a third of the sea that becomes blood but it's the entire sea that becomes blood and of course you probably 
can't miss the the reference to the first plague uh, of Egypt in Exodus 7, uh, verses 17 through 21, is when the waters were turned to blood. The Nile was turned to blood. And the, the idea isn't just that it became blood, but it was blood as of a dead person. And we've already seen, I'm not going to read the sections to you again. You can go back and listen to those. We've already seen Josephus, uh, the historian that was there during the Jewish war, talk about all the, 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 the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea being filled with bodies and blood and, and, you know, washing up on the shore and all those kind of things. We've already seen that. But it says here, that everything in the sea dies uh, in the trumpet judgment a third did here everything dies and so it's a recapitulation of those things and so we see once again in the second bowl we see a recapitulation of the second trumpet and we see an allusion to the uh, the uh, plague that came upon uh, Egypt and uh, in the third bowl verse uh, 4 through 7 it says the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Let's stop there just for a moment. Uh, the third trumpet is also poured out on the rivers right here we're looking at the third bowl but in the third trumpet in revelation 8 verse 10 we see that the third trumpet was poured out on the rivers and the streams and what happened to them a third of the rivers and streams became wormwood we saw that in revelation chapter 8 but here it's an intensification a third uh, all of the rivers and streams become blood and this is also just like the nile that became blood in in the in the exodus um but here we have an interlude between uh between between this judgment and the next and what's going to go on here is both the angels and the altar we've seen the altar before we'll talk about that in a moment um, they are proclaiming god's righteousness for bringing uh for bringing the uh the uh judgments that are going on here uh it says it says uh just are you righteous are you that's the word righteous are you O holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments he is the holy one of israel that's a name that israel over and over again used in the old testament for uh, the messiah that would come for god himself and they proclaim that his wrath is righteous and just it's just and good he is right to be doing these things now when you think about the uh the judgments of revelation where you think about them in the end times or whether you think about them uh being during the siege of jerusalem it's just it's just horrid looking if if you read through josephus's account of the jewish war it is absolutely uh it's shocking how awful and terrible these things were you have all the way from from boils and bodies uh piled up and all those things there's any even a section in josephus where he he says that titus was surveying the outside of the city and he saw the bodies piled up and he raised his head to god and said this is not my doing i didn't do this and so it's just awful horrible things going on people there's a woman that's the recounted of, of eating her child and that is also uh, a covenant promise that of judgment that we see in deuteronomy 28 there's disease there's robbers there's uh just riots in the city there's just all kind of craziness goes on uh, and it said you think of that you look at that and you said 
you know, that's just, that's just awful. It's horrible. But here are these angels, and later in just a second we'll see the altar, they're saying, God, you're good. You're right for doing these things. You're right for bringing this judgment. And the reason that he is right, it says, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Uh, those who have are being judged have killed the saints and the prophets. Now, wait just a minute, Jason. How can these be? You're saying that these judgments were poured out on Jerusalem in 70 AD, when 68 to 70, or 66 to 70, excuse me. Um, how are you saying, how can Jerusalem be charged with killing saints and prophets? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Well, it does if you take Jesus' words. It does if you take uh, the, the words of uh, uh, the apostles and those followers of Jesus uh, right after uh, the uh, the day of Pentecost. In Matthew 23, I'm going to read 34 through 37. It's quite a few verses, but I want you to listen to I want you to listen to Jesus's words. He says he's talking about the city in Jerusalem. This is 23 is right before he's uh, right after he's come out of the city, standing on the Mount of Olives, right before the Olivet Discourse. He says, verse uh, 34 through 37 of Matthew 23, he says, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he goes on to say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers uh, her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus, out of the mouth of the Son of God himself, says that it is Jerusalem who kills the saints and persecutes the prophets. It is Jerusalem who kills the prophets and is going to persecute the saints from town to town. And it is this generation that all the blood shed from righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah will be poured out upon. And then in, in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 verse 51, Stephen ha- is recounting the history of Israel, and when he gets done, of course, you know what happens, he, he gets stoned, but uh, it says he says in verse 51 of Acts 7, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the just one, the holy one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And so if you look from a New Testament perspective, if you look from Jesus's own words and the, the those who came after Jesus's words uh, written down in Scripture, you realize that uh, the ones who the 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 nation who killed the prophets, the nation who uh, who killed the the spokesman of God is uh, usually unilaterally talking about Israel. And what you see here is it's called it's called the lex talionis. It's called the it means the law of retaliation. And so it says here in uh, in Revelation chapter 6 they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you've given them blood to drink. And so the the waters turning to blood is a a picture of the Egyptian plague of course. 
But it's also part of the lex talionis. God uh, gives them what they have given. In the the, the law of retaliation, you can see it in Genesis nine, Genesis nine six. Whoever sheds blood of man by man, his blood be shed. Uh, and then in Exodus twenty one, if you know there's harm, you're going to pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You know that's called the the lex talionis, called the law of retaliation. And what you see here is that being poured out uh, upon the people. They have they have taken the blood of the prophets and the saints and therefore God has given them blood to drink and the point of this section is the angels here even the the through the horrible nature of it all the angels here are praising God for what he is doing it's right it's just to be doing what he's doing it's right to pour his wrath out upon those uh, who have done these things and then in verse 7 of Revelation 16 the altar praises God as well. In verse 7 it says, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now you remember the altar, the the martyrs under the altar crying for justice. We saw them crying for justice from chapter 5, uh, from chapter 4 and 5 on up through... Um, on up through the, the the book of Revelation and even fire from that altar being thrown down upon the land. Uh, they're cry, they've cried for justice uh, this whole time, and now they're praising God for his righteous judgments. So as we move into the fourth bowl, in verse 8, it says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Notice it's called plagues there. They did not repent and give him glory. The bowl is, this bowl is poured out on the sun. Uh, interestingly enough, we've seen this over and over again, the fourth trumpet was also blown against the sun. Revelation uh, 8 and 9. Uh, it, in, the, in the trumpet judgment, though, a third of the sun was struck so that a third of its light was darkened. Here, the reverse happens. The, the entire sun is um, the subject of the bowl being poured out. And the sun is not darkened at this point. We're going to see darkness in the fifth bowl. But the sun isn't darkened. It's allowed to scorch men. Now, what's the point of this? What's the idea uh, of, of that's being communicated here? This is a revoking of the covenant blessing of being protected from the sun. You see that over and over again. Psalm uh, 121, 5 and 6. It says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Isaiah forty nine ten says, Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. Uh, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And we've already seen it in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. In the covenant promise, it says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And so what we see here is in this bowl being poured out, we see a revoking, a, a pulling back of that covenant promise. Not only are the covenant judgments being pulled, poured out upon the people, but the covenant promises are being removed from the people because they have failed to recognize their Messiah. They've failed to recognize and to worship their uh, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fulfillment of the law of Moses, the fulfillment of the old covenant. Uh, they have failed to recognize that. They failed to worship and accept that. And so they have chosen to, they have chosen idolatry. And so God's covenant uh, is uh, the, the promises are being pulled back and the judgments are being poured out. 
And what happens when these uh, judgments are poured out? What happens when these uh, these uh, promises of protection are are pulled back? Just like Pharaoh in the Exodus, the people's hearts are hardened and they refuse to repent and give glory to God. They refuse to repent and give glory to God. Now, um, it is uh, something, it's really amazing, uh, but a lot of times we think, you know, if I can just... Um, if I can just get these people to understand, if I can just have the right words, if I can have the, 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 the right thing to say to my, to my family and friends, they'll finally understand, uh, God. They'll finally understand, uh, that God loves them and God, you know, wants to save them and they'll repent of their sin and they'll trust in Him and, and do all those things. But the reality is that the Bible makes clear that it is the grace of God that brings men to salvation. Even here, even here, when all of these things are poured out upon the are poured out upon the people, they still refuse to repent. They refuse to do what God has told them to do. They refuse to uh, uh, they refuse to call out upon the Messiah and to and to trust the Messiah. Um, I, I told you. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, Josephus, I told you about Titus going around the city. Uh, there's a part in Josephus in, uh, Wars of the Jews 5, 12, 4. Um, it says in, in uh, it's line 5, 24. I'm going to start reading it. And it talks about the, the stubbornness of these people. It says, so Caesar is talking about Titus went his rounds through the legions and hastened on the works and showed the robbers that they were now in his hands. The robbers are who he's describing as the, the people in Jerusalem. He says, but these men and these only were incapable of repenting of the wickedness they had been guilty of and separating and separating their souls from their bodies. They used them both as if they belonged to folks and not themselves. They were uh, completely devoid of any sorrow, any repentance, any any semblance of understanding what was going on, and they refused to give God glory. They refused to accept the fact that uh, God's judgment was being poured out upon them. And so it says they blasphemed God. They did not repent. You have a picture of Pharaoh himself right there. Uh, Jerusalem has become Egypt, just as Revelation 11 characterizes it. Uh, and the people there, their hearts are hardened. Even when the judgments come, even when the plagues are poured out, Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. And these people here would not repent and give glory to God. The fifth bowl in, uh, in verse 10, it says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now, this is an interesting one. The fifth angel poured his bowl out on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, we've we got to get that straight. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for the pain of their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So it says the bowl is poured out. Now, look where it's poured out. It's poured out on the beast's throne. But the effect of being poured out on the beast's throne is that the kingdom is thrown into darkness. Now, the fifth trumpet we saw in uh, Revelation, of course, corresponds to the, f the fifth bowl. Uh, the fifth trumpet darkens the air as, remember, the bottomless pit is open and the locusts came out and the air was darkened. But it also recalls the ninth plague of Egypt, which was, of course, darkness. 
But notice that the throne of the beast is struck, and the result is his kingdom is is darkened. Now, almost all commentators are going to see this as figurative and symbolic. Even even those who believe it's a a, a reality to happen in the end times, they're going to see this darkness as a, as a, a figurative of 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 judicial blindness of. Uh, the hardening that we have already seen take place. Um, now, futurists are going to say that this is going to happen during the revived Roman Empire at the end times and all those things. Uh, but the kingdom being plunged into darkness—it's it, it, the kingdom that's darkened. It says it's poured out on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom is darkened. This raises some questions. The interpretive question: What is this kingdom, and, and what is the throne of the beast? So let's take them in opposite order. What's the throne of the beast? At first glance. You're you're going to think Rome, the emperor's throne, emperor's throne. Uh, that's common interpretation, and there is a lot of merit to it. To be honest with you, I had trouble right here. I've always had trouble right here. Uh, I, I go back and forth between when well, it's it's probably got to be Rome. It's probably got to be the Romans. It's probably, then I, I go back and forth to the seat of uh, the seat of Roman authority in uh, the province, which was Jerusalem. It wasn't the the capital or anything like that, but the the temple, the high priest or how the Rome uh, controlled the people, so to speak. Um, Ralph Bass, in his commentary, says that the beast here is not identified, so he thinks it's the second beast, the false prophet. You know, that's possible. It's possible, but I, I have a hard time with that interpretation because the beast's throne has already been mentioned in Revelation. Revelation 13.2, the, the, we're talking about the Roman beast. Uh, the dragon gave the beast his throne, and so uh, this is clearly a reference to Rome. Uh, so I, I don't think it'd be I don't think it'd be sound to to suddenly switch to the second beast, you know, without some kind of warrant in the text. Um, but what we do see here, and this is what this is what I'm going to do. I, I want to kind of put these two pictures together for you. I've already told you about the high priests and the temple aristocracy being controlled by Rome, and we already saw how John calls them beast worshippers. Uh, we already saw how John called the, the synagogues the synagogues of Satan. We saw how Jerusalem was called Sodom in Egypt. Uh, we saw how Rome exercised control of the people. Through the temple and the aristocracy, and the emperor appointed or, or gave the governor's authority to appoint or remove the high, high priest. So what we see here is what was supposed to be what was supposed to be God's covenant people reject their Messiah. They align themselves politically with the beast, with Rome. So John could rightly speak of the seat of the beast in the temple that was the was supposed to be dedicated to God. The true temple, Jesus had come and gone, and now his people were the true temple. Um, the Jerusalem temple was a puppet of the beast. He ruled the beast ruled Judea from the Jerusalem temple and historians throughout the ages have noticed this and and uh, commented on this. I'll just give you uh, I'll give you a few from Josephus. In Antiquities 18.2.1, Antiquities is a different book from Wars of the Jews. It's Antiquities of the Jews, and it basically runs down a history of, of the Jewish people. And it's written by Josephus. He says, when these are all in the outline as well, so you don't have to write them down. You can just go get the outline. It says, when, when uh, Cyrenius had now deposed uh, of Archelaus's money, and when the taxings were come to a conclusion, which were made in the 37th year of Caesar's victory over Antony at Actium, he, listen, he deprived, this Cyrenius deprived Joazar of the high priesthood with dignity had been conferred upon him by the multitude, and he appointed uh, Ananus, 
the son of Seth to be high priest. So there you see uh, one of the Roman governors appointing high, a high priest in Antiquities twenty. Eight eight. Uh, it says about this time Agrippa gave the high priesthood to Ismael, uh, who was the son of Fabi. And now arose a sedition between the high priests and the principal men of the multitude of Jerusalem. There we see Agrippa appointing the high priest, deposing one high priest and appointing another. And then in Antiquities fifteen eleven four, uh, this shows that the. Uh, the Rome was basically in charge of the high priestly garments uh, and, and would give them to whoever they wanted. It says this vestment, talking about the high priestly garments, King Herod kept in that place. And after his death, they were under the power of the Romans until the time of Tiberius Caesar, under whose reign Vitellius, the president of Syria, when he once came to Jerusalem and had been most magnificently received by the multitude, he had a mind to take them uh, some requital for the kindness they had shown to him so upon their petition to have the holy vestments in their own power he wrote about them to tiberius caesar who granted his request and so uh it says and their and this their power over the sacerdotal vestments continued with the jews till the death of king agrippa so what we see here is that it was rome who was dictating what goes on in the temple what goes on in the uh the uh the office of the high priest and how that priest how that aristocracy uh dealt with the people. Now, Rome did it subtly because Rome, they, they don't know anything about the temple. They don't know anything about the administration. So what they did was they used the Herods. They used Agrippa II. They used Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa and Agrippa II. They used those uh, those local rulers, those tetriarchs that, that they, in fact, put in power to... Uh, to uh, to replace uh, high priests and to move the ministration of the temple to their own fancy. And so when it says, when it says that uh, um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, I lost my train of thought. When it says that the, the angel poured the bowl out on the throne of the beast, his kingdom is plunged into darkness. Uh, I, I have to take that as the the temple seat where Rome controlled Jerusalem. It is Rome because the Rome we've seen the throne of the beast over and over again. But we we understand that this darkness was a judicial hardening of the people. Now you also need to remember. I, I'm not just saying that to be saying it. It's more evidence that goes along with that. We're going to see as we go through chapter 16. But you also remember that everything in this chapter that we're going to see, uh, even those things to come, are from a Jewish context in the Jewish land, we see the in in a, in a moment we're going to see one of the one of the uh, the judgments dries the Euphrates up. Well, the Euphrates is is right there uh, is one of the boundaries of the Holy Land that that was given uh, to uh, to Abraham and and uh, um, uh, Joshua and all and all those kind of things. And then at the end, you're going to see the plain of Megiddo. You're going to see uh, Armageddon. Usually is a term we use for the end of the world, but the word Har Megiddo is the mountain of Megiddo, which is there in the Jewish land. And so all of this is taking place in the context of this land, in the context of this space. And so while it is strange, and I will I will entertain. Uh, some people say, some uh, interpreters say that the throne of the beast is, of course, the the, the seat of the emperor, and, and you know that's a very valid interpretation. And the darkness, the judicial blindness that comes over happens when you know Nero is killed, and the the empire goes into the the frenzy of the year of the four emperors, and there's civil war and all those kind of things. And you know what? That that's very possible. So I'm not shutting the door completely on that, but because of the 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 
Jewish nature of everything that we've seen. The judgments recapitulate Egypt. The uh, the the uh, judgments that we have already seen here are uh, mirroring the trumpet judgments that we've seen that were um, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. We have uh, landmarks uh, that are in the Holy Land, Euphrates and the plain of Megiddo and, and those kind of things. And we see that all the judgments so far have been promised to the people of Israel if they did not keep covenant. All of that evidence combined makes me think that this is speaking of uh, the temple as the the seat of the beast where Rome controls uh, the things that are going on in the temple. Like I said, I'm not going to be arguing and, and all that. You know, I, I'm open to other other kind of things. And, you know, there are some things that... Uh, there are some things that we could talk about as far as being Rome in the darkness and all those kind of things. But based on the evidence that I see in the chapter with the uh, Jewish context, I have to I have to kind of lean to that position. So the sixth bowl then, verse 12, says the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Hey, that's what we were just talking about. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the... Well, let's stop there. Let's start, stop at 12. Um, the bowl is poured out on the Euphrates. The Euphrates was, of course, the northern boundary of the, the land that was promised to Abraham. Uh, the Euphrates, interestingly enough, is also the river that all of Israel's greatest enemies came across to conquer them. Assyria, Babylon, uh, you name it. The Persians. Uh, Persians didn't actually attack, but you know what I mean. Uh, the, the Euphrates here in this bowl is poured out. The Euphrates is dried up. It says now, of course, this reminds you of the Red Sea being dried up in Exodus fourteen twenty one, uh, as well as the Jordan being dried up, allowing the Israel to cross into the promised land. Uh, in those instances, though, it dried up for their protection. Here, it is allowing the invading army to come across. And so, what would be in the mind of a person of this historical time that was raised in the Jew- Jewish mindset, understanding the Jewish history, and all those, it would be the Persian king Cyrus, uh, if you know your history in 536 uh, Cyrus diverted the river Euphrates and dried it up so he could march his army down the riverbed and conquer Babylon and that's what you get a picture of that in, in Daniel where you see the writing on the wall and the armies coming and, and, uh, and the, the Babylon being uh, turned over to uh, turned over to the Persians. Uh, this is this uh, diverting of the Euphrates and drying up the riverbed, and so the army can march down it. It's recorded in Herodotus's histories. Uh, it's uh, uh, Book One, uh, one ninety through ninety one. Uh, the Euphrates was where all the northern enemies, where all the enemies of Israel, uh, Israel came and conquered Jerusalem. So the idea of the Euphrates being being dried up really doesn't have any significance other than uh, it was um, the the boundary of the of the holy land of the land of Israel where all the enemies of Israel came from and it was the downfall of Babylon when uh, when uh, Cyrus dried up the river and uh, uh, when he diverted the river and dried the riverbed and he conquered Babylon and so we've already seen we're going to see that again here in this chapter that uh, Jerusalem is being characterized as Babylon and so you see here there's two two uh, cultural and a uh, um, uh, uh, a locative uh, indication that what we're talking about here is the the uh, the the land of Israel, and so the army assembles for battle. Now, here's where things get kind of weird for us as modern interpreters. Uh, the the rivers dried up. 
in order for the, the, the army, the kings from the east to come. I'll explain those kings from the east in just a moment. But it says, look what assembles the army. Uh, verse 13 says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. You remember the Egyptian plagues of frogs? That's what we see here. So this six bowl uh, the sixth bowl is uh, reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues, uh, plague of frogs. Now, these frogs are described for us. It says they are demonic spirits. And these demonic spirits perform signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Uh, that's where I explain the kings to assemble them for the great for for battle on the great day of the Lord God Almighty. And so what happens is. We're seeing a picture here of the sea dried up, uh, just like uh, Cyrus did when he conquered Babylon. And now the these demonic spirits go out from the mouth. They're going from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. And so what you see here is kind of a... Uh, kind of a, I, I would call it an unholy trinity, you know, uh, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. But what comes out of their mouth is uh, is uh, these spirits. Now, the the frogs are interpreted from us, so don't don't think that there's you know big old frogs hopping around in the Holy Land or something like that. They're spirits, and they come out of the mouth of this unholy trinity. And these spirits, they they relate to the speech because they're coming out of the mouth, and and it could be accusations which proceed out of the mouth of false prophet, the dragon, uh, these things that are bringing these armies to war. These these demonic spirits will make sure they'll make sure that the armies come to do what God has called them to do. They they will come to destroy what God has deemed uh, is ready for destruction. But my question in understanding all this was why would these frogs be needed? I mean, why would these spirits be needed to bring Rome's army to battle? And why is it characterized as the kings of the world? The kings of the, the actually it's the Roman Empire, the words oikumene, it's not cosmos, it's oikumene, which is the Roman Empire. Why would it be the kings of the world if, you know, the emperor was in charge? So let's take those questions and look at them. Um, the frogs, these uh, spirits would be needed uh, to bring the army to battle because there was so much... Um, there was so much dissent, revolt, rebellion, and all those things in this decade, for in the 60s, uh, that uh, a lot of people, a lot of historians saw the downfall of Rome if something didn't happen. Of course, we know something did. Uh, Vespasian went back to Rome and took control and began the Flavian dynasty of emperors. But uh, before that, when Nero committed suicide, and even before that in the, in the, in the years uh, prior, uh, the Ro Roman Empire was just spiraling down into chaos. Um, uh, there was a revolt in Britain that uh, that caused a, a huge deal. You had the the Great Fire of Rome in sixty four. Then you have uh, the Jewish rebellions uh, during that decade. Uh, the Germanic people, the Germanic legions in the Roman army, revolted. Uh, Nero commits suicide. Uh, then you have the year of the Civil War began, where the four emperors, each one was assassinated. Factions of the army were putting their own emperor into place, and then he would be killed, and then somebody else would come and take his place. And all this turmoil, all this, all these things were going on. And so, 
You know, we've already seen, I've told you before, where historians say that it looked like Rome was falling. Why would the people, why would the kings of these nations that were ruled by the Roman Empire, why would they support them in their wars of the Jews? And the answer is because it, they were influenced by these these spirits. Now, the kings of the earth, the kings of the world, uh, who are they and why are we talking about kings of the world when it was the Roman army that came? Uh, the Roman army, of course, consisted of auxiliaries sent from rulers all over the empire. They each, remember I told you Rome put its own, you know, its own governors uh, in place, but he they ruled through local magistrates, local, and they called them kings, like, like King Herod. I mean, King Herod was the ruler over that province, but he didn't really have any power, only the power that Rome allowed him to have. And so uh, there were auxiliaries from these nations. There were Germanic tribes and there were uh, tribes from this nation and tribes from that nation that came and were part of the legions that attacked Jerusalem. Let me give you a few examples. In Josephus Wars 313, it says, So so Vespasian sent his son Titus from Achaia, where he had been with Nero to Alexandria, to bring back with him thence the 5th and the 10th legion, where he himself, when he had passed over the Hellespont, came by land into Syria, where he gathered together the Roman forces with a considerable number of auxiliaries from the kings in that neighborhood. You see that? Josephus, the historian. And in Wars 3.4.2, it says, But as to Titus, he sailed over from Achaia to uh, Alexandria, and that sooner the winter season did usually permit, so he took with him those forces he was sent for, and marching with great expedition, he came suddenly to Ptolemaeus, and there, finding his father together with two legions, the fifth and the tenth, which were the most eminent legions of all, he joined them to the fifteenth legion, which was with his father, Eighteen cohorts followed these legions. There came also five cohorts from Caesarea with a troop of horsemen, five other troops from horsemen of Syria. Now these ten cohorts had several thousand footmen, but the other thirteen cohorts had no more than six hundred footmen apiece with a hundred and twenty horsemen. There were also a considerable number of auxiliaries got together that came from kings Antiochus and Agrippa and so he must, each one of them contributing 1,000 footmen that were archers and 1,000 horsemen. Malchus, also the king of Arabia, sent 1,000 horsemen. Besides 5,000 footmen, the, great, the greatest part whom were archers. So that the whole army, including the auxiliaries sent by the kings, as well as horsemen and footmen, when they were all together, amounted to 60,000 besides the servants. So even in Josephus, you see there were auxiliaries that were part of the Roman force. There were uh, these kings that gave uh, people who, I mean, they were ruled by Rome, but they were kings of their own province, their own nation. They gave their people to uh, join into the battle. In Wars 5.1.6, it says, there followed him, him there is Titus, there followed him also 3,000 drawn from those that guarded the river Euphrates, that is Roman legions that were stationed at the at the Euphrates. And so what you see here is uh, I don't have any exact historical reference for you as to when and how this happened, but we're told that these demonic spirits, these these they're characterized as frogs because of the plagues of Egypt, uh, these demonic spirits go out and infest 
in su- in such a way that they bring all the kings they they uh they bring all the kings of the world the oikumene which is the roman world not the entire earth uh they bring all the kings of the world to do battle and they're going to bring them to megiddo they're going to bring them to right there in the holy land that's where we're talking about and so uh what what you see is that indeed did happen it was all the kings of the earth all the kings of the roman empire that uh gave uh gave auxiliaries to uh to uh, attack to siege and to inevitably destroy jerusalem right here there's a dramatic pause where all these things are going on and it says in verse 15 and 16 uh, or verse 15 uh christ we're told of of christ's uh, warning that went out it says verse 15 behold i am coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed now if you're a student of the new testament you you recognize this reference is from christ's warning in matthew 20 verses 1 through 7 uh, and the reality of it is that for 40 years between Christ's death and the destruction of Jerusalem for 40 years the church uh, of Christ has called the inhabitants of Jerusalem as well as everybody else to the wedding feast they've called them to join with their Messiah they've called them to trust in their Messiah and instead of coming to the wedding feast the Jewish aristocracy, aristocracy and the majority of, of the people killed and persecuted the believers we've seen that over and over again so the lesson is clear there's really no interpretive gymnastics that i need to do to uh, to get you to understand what he's saying the warning has been sounded for them the warning has gone forth he's coming like a thief he's coming in, at this point the the coming is not a you know a coming of jesus from the clouds but judgment coming uh, upon the old covenant people the wiping away of the old covenant system and the uh, the validation of the new the validation of christ as uh, indeed messiah and it says the army assembles at Megiddo. Uh, here is where uh, this is the only place in the Bible where the word Armageddon is. Uh, it's actually Harmageddon because there's a breathing, a rough breathing mark in Greek uh, that is not uh, is not translatable in English. So it's a H sound. So it's Harmageddon, not Armageddon. Uh, but it says verse sixteen says, and they assembled them at a place that is in Hebrew called Harmageddon, or Armageddon in English, of course, is just a. Uh, Harmageddon means the mountain of Megiddo. Uh, that's what it means. It, we, we use the word to mean the end of the world and Judgment Day, but it means the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a valley. It's a plain about two days from about two days from Jerusalem, which is also strange. If they're, uh, you know, what we're talking about, we're talking about landmarks in, in the Holy Land, but the closest mountain to the plain of Megiddo is Mount Carmel. Uh, and so this would kind of be a strange place to for the for the world to launch a uh, an assault on Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, even in the future, I mean, it'd be it'd be strange. I mean, you're two days from Jerusalem. Uh, but what we're seeing here is a reference to a place of woe, a place of mourning. Uh, it would be like. You know, you ever heard someone say, well, that was his Waterloo where where he he met his end, you know, because of Napoleon Waterloo and all those. Uh, that was his little bighorn. That was his, you know, we use the places like that where something tragic happened or something often happened, awful happened. So we can, you know, uh, uh, describe in word pictures the the. Uh, the events that take place. Uh, the Valley of Megiddo, the Plain of Megiddo, it was recognized by Jews as a place of mourning 
and a place of loss. It is uh, Valley of uh, Plain of Megiddo is is the place where King Ahaziah died. Uh, you can see that in Second Kings nine twenty seven. It says when uh, Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan, and Jehu pursued him and said, "Shoot him also!" And they shot him in the chariot uh, at the ascent of Gur, which is by Eblium, and he fled to Megiddo and died there. But more importantly, uh, it is the place where the good king Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho. Uh, in in Second uh, Kings twenty three twenty nine, in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. Uh, king Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. So there we have a reference to the Euphrates and to Megiddo and to the mourning and loss that goes on. Uh, there was when when Josiah died. There was a great mourning for his death. There was uh, the, the all of Judea was in mourning and pain for for his death. He was a great king. You can see the mourning and and talk about that in Second Chronicles thirty five uh, twenty two through twenty five. So you can look at those things. But it was a place prophesied to be a place of mourning. It was a place. Uh, Megiddo was a place prophesied to be uh, a place where judgment falls, just like it just like it was when Josiah was killed in Zechariah chapter twelve. Verse 11. Now, that's where it talks about this place of mourning. But I've included verse 10 because we've already seen verse 10 in Revelation. Zechariah 12, 10, and 11. I'm going to read these to you. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. We've seen that before. The very next verse says, On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. That's in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11. Now, that uh, Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo is speaking of the the time when Jos- when Josiah was killed and the mourning was great throughout the throughout Israel and so this idea of of uh, the battle of Armageddon really isn't the you know all the you know nuclear you know all that kind of stuff it, 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 it is he it, man I can't talk it isn't even uh, the idea of the uh, destruction of the earth and the you know the end of history and all those things it's the mountain of Megiddo which is a symbol for the people of Israel of mourning and loss and woe and so these these uh, this will be this day when God pours out this uh, judgment when God pours out this there will be more he's saying there will be mourning in Israel just like there was when Josiah was killed at Megiddo he's saying this is going to be your waterloo this is going to be your little bighorn this is going to be this is going to be your destruction is basically what he's what he's telling them he says uh that place was called harmageddon and so in verse 17 through uh 21 is where we'll see the seventh bowl uh, i'm trying to hurry up i know it's getting long uh the this bowl is poured out into the air uh verse 17 says the seventh bowl poured out the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done it is done and so uh, uh it says and there was flashes of lightning rumblings peals of thunder great earthquakes such as had never been since man was on the earth uh, so great was that earthquake and then the great city 
was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Let's stop there and and see what's going on here. Judgment has reached its goal. Finally, the covenant judgment is complete. He says it's done. The judgments that God promised Israel for breaking the covenant are fulfilled. And we've seen that from judgment to judgment, how they were promised in the in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. Uh, the old has passed away. The new covenant has been ratified. And so verses 18 through 20, what we're seeing is the same thing we've seen twice before with uh, or three times before with the earthquakes and the lightning and the flashings uh, the presence of God the basically what you're seeing here is the foundation of the world is shaken it's it's language that shows that the the foundations of the very very creation are shaken and that's prophetic language that is used over and over again for the destruction of cities in the Old Testament uh, we've seen these descriptions several times already pointing back to God's presence on Mount Sinai um, here God's presence is experienced uh, is uh, experienced in terror and judgment for breaking the covenant. And to be to be fair, there there is uh, some sections in Josephus and other historians that relate great earthquakes and storms during this time. Uh, but uh, to be honest with you, I don't know if I could draw a straight line between this is that. So I didn't include those. But what we are seeing is the same thing that we have seen already described for us three times in Revelation. So this is this is not some. Uh, this is not this is a culmination of judgment just as we have seen uh before in like the culmination you know in one third of the sun was one fourth of the sun was struck then one third of the sun was struck and then the whole sun we've seen the the great earthquake and the lightnings then the, the added to it the peals of thunder and now we've seen the the culmination of these things and basically what we're seeing is the city experiences the wrath of God, you see it right there in the text. Uh, it says the great verse nineteen. The great city was split into three parts. So where are these judgments focused? They're focused on the great city. And look what it says. And the cities of the nations fell. Now we're going to talk about that language. You know, uh, you know, all the world didn't fall. But notice, do you see the difference between the great city and the cities of the nations? What's the difference? How would you describe Jerusalem? Jerusalem is a city that's different from the cities of the nations, i.e. the Gentiles. Uh, it describes these these uh, loci of judgment. He describes them in two different ways. One is the great city. One is all the cities of the nations. I don't see how you can't see Jerusalem uh, being described there because there's only two kinds of people. There's Jews in their, mind, in their mind. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And so it says the great city and all the other cities of the nations. Uh, they, it is described in such a way that it is talking about Jerusalem. And it says that great city... Jerusalem has already been called Sodom, Egypt in Revelation. We saw that. Now it's called that great city. That points back to the angel's statement in Revelation, which called Babylon the great city has fallen. Jerusalem is now characterized as Babylon. And you can see this more and more when it's when this reference, um, uh, the city is broken into three parts. Uh, now, a lot of people take that to uh, to mean, you know, uh, be a historical reality. There were three factions in the 
cities and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's possible. I'm not discounting that, but I think the main reference is to the judgment pronounced in Ezekiel 5, 11 and 12. And this is what it says. It says, therefore, he's pronouncing judgment on the city of Jerusalem. He says, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore, I will withdraw my eye will not spare and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to the winds and will unsheath the sword after them. And the same thing is said, the city's broken into thirds in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 2. Both of those prophets are talking about the city of Jerusalem. So you have the great city, which is distinguished from the city of the Gentiles. And then you have uh, the the city broken into thirds with an allusion to two prophets, both prophesying the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. I think that the, the evidence for the, this being the city is pretty overwhelming. And then you have the create, created order shaken, verse, verse 20 uh, and 21. Now, here is it's a strange thing. It says, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Uh, what we're talking about there, the, the nations fell, uh, the city fell, the nations fell, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. It, how can you say that that happened in the first century? How can you say that this is characterizing of... Um, the destruction of Jerusalem uh, very easily if you know prophetic literature uh, because prophetic language is used here for the destruction of a city or, or culture. The same decreation language was used to prophesy the destruction of Babylon by the Medes in Isaiah 13, 9 and 10 it says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh It's talking about the Medes coming against Babylon. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. That is speaking of the invasion of Babylon by the Medes. Uh, the destruction of Idumea is uh, is a. Uh, spoken to us through Isaiah in Isaiah 35, 34 verse 4 and 5. All these are in the outline so you don't have to write them down. It says and all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falleth off from the vine and falling from a fig tree for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. That is the destruction of Idumea and it's talking about the heaven being rolled up as a scroll and all. I mean did all that happen when Idumea was destroyed did all that happen when the Medes conquered Babylon the same thing is described for us in Ezekiel uh, in the uh, the invasion of Egypt by the Babylonians. It says in Ezekiel 32, verse 7 uh, through 8, it says, And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light, and the bright lights of heaven uh, will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord God. That is describing the invasion of Egypt. Uh, and if you go down in Ezekiel 32, down to verse 11 and 12, it makes it clear that it's the Babylonians that are going to attack Egypt. And so all that prophetic language is speaking of a dest the destruction of a city or a culture. And we see the same thing here. We see the same kind of decreation language. You see the same thing in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. All of those things about the sun and the moon and all, 
They're describing the destruction of a city. They're describing, describing in prophetic language the destruction of a culture. And finally, the last verse, verse 21, talks about the hail. We have another Egyptian plague referenced. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds. The ESV says 100 pounds. Uh, the text says one talent. Uh, each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Again, of course, reminiscent of an Egyptian plague. Uh, the hailstones rained down on the city. They weighed a talent each, which is really interesting. Uh, Josephus relates a very interesting account of the Roman siege uh, Roman siege engines. They would throw stones over the wall as the, the Romans sieged the city. In uh, Wars of the Jews 563 it says, the engines that all the legions had ready prepared for them were admirably contrived but still more extraordinary ones belonged to the 10th legion. Those that threw darts and those that threw stones were more forcible and larger than the rest by which which they not only repelled the excursions of the Jews, but drove those away that were upon the walls also. Now the stones that were cast were of the weight of a talent, one talent, and were carried two furlongs and farther. The the blow they gave was no way to be sustained, not only by those that stood first in the way, but the by those that were beyond them for a great space. And so you see the hail coming upon the city is these great stones falling. But also it's reminiscent of the Egyptian plague of the hail. So what we've seen in this chapter, as we come to the culmination of, of God's judgment, there's going to be a lot of explanatory notes in the next uh, in the next chapter talking about who this uh, Babylon is, who this beast is, and, and that's where we got the. We've talked about 17 before, but we're going to see a lot of explanation go on in chapter 17. But it said, but we uh, we we've seen the judgments of both the trumpets and the bowls follow almost word for word, uh, text for text, with the Egyptian plagues as well as God's covenant warnings in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 which were warning the Israelites what would happen if they broke covenant. Just as God promised, God turns the plagues back on Jerusalem and old covenant Israel and fulfills what he promised to do if they broke covenant with him and they did indeed break covenant by not accepting the fulfillment of the covenant in the Messiah. And so uh, I'm not doing a whole lot of application in this study. There are great preachers from all kinds of different interpretive models that preach wonderful sermons on uh, Revelation and all those things. What I'm trying to do is more or less give you a give you a um, I don't know, an introduction into the way that uh, many people throughout church history have viewed the book of Revelation, and of course, in the way that uh, I indeed view it. So I hope these are helpful to you, and uh, we'll, we'll get back together on Revelation chapter 17.